Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Big day today, big parliamentary state occasion, the Queen's speech, the state opening of Parliament. Looking a little bit different to normal, it has to be said. Much less uh, pomp and pageantry and tooting of trumpets than we're usually used to. But, what, two dozen bills announced by Boris Johnson, the legislation that the government hopes to pass in the coming months. Uh, coming up, we pick over what it all means with Tom Newton Dunn and we hear from some Times colleagues too on uh, exactly what they're planning or not planning in some key policy areas. That's coming up. But first, our columnist panel is Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkstein and David Ivanovich. Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. It's sillier every time you hear it, doesn't it? Yes, it's that time of the morning. We speak to two of our favourite columnists, and on a Tuesday, it is Finkelvich. Uh, morning, Danny Finkelstein. Good morning. I'm disturbed by the fact that I've become acclimatised to that um, <laughs> jingle. <laughs> and is your dog with you today, Danny? I did hear it bark, but it seems to have fallen silent to, uh, for the moment anyway. Very good. But very yes, it's the unfortunate And, and uh, David Aronovich, good morning. Good morning. Do you know, it's not just that somebody thinks that you should ban other people eating boiled eggs. It's that they obviously believe that everybody else hates watching people eat boiled eggs. And you begin to think, it's only me that doesn't hate watching other people eat boiled eggs and that doesn't care about it. <laughs> but it's interesting, David, so you enjoy watching someone eating a boiled egg? No, but then I don't really enjoy watching other people eating at all. I mean, I used to when I was, you know, when the kids yeah. were very young and they wouldn't eat and then they would. Then you think, well, that's good. But otherwise, I can take or leave other people eating. <laughs> I didn't know that's where we were going to kick off. Before we, we get down to business, uh, Danny, any views on people eating boiled eggs? No, I w yeah, well, I'd like that bill to be introduced so that I could amend it so that people were not allowed to eat vegetable soup at their desk. <laughs> very good, very good. I'm glad that we've got that uh, covered. Right, let's talk about um, uh, how do you sack people successfully? 
or, or, or at all, as uh, Keir Starmer found it slightly uh, trickier than he thought, or at least he, he did the sacking and then had to go around telling everyone, no, you haven't been sacked, you've got another job. Um, the art of reshuffles. Uh, Danny, in your time, have you ever been involved in, in reshuffles behind the scenes? Well, quite a bit behind the scenes. Although, funnily enough, um, usually who's going to be reshuffled is kept very, very tight until the last minute, partly because the principal person, the Prime Minister, is making their own... All, the leader of the party, if it's a shadow reshuffle, is making their own mind up until the last minute. So when you hear leaks, they're often not very well sourced or by people who pretend that they know more than they do because the decision hasn't actually been made yet. Uh, as this reshuffle demonstrated, one bit is shoved along by another. So um, my friend Greg Clark, I think, would have been health secretary uh, in Theresa May's final reshuffle, but he didn't become health secretary because Jeremy Hunt refused to move. Uh, and... Um, so there were a lot of speculation, in fact, that Greg was about to be fired. Uh, but that was that was incorrect speculation, which he had to put up with, uh, because the truth was uh, sort of more complicated and related to Jeremy Hunt's refusal to stop being health secretary. So the, the these reshuffles all depend on other people moving. And they can get quite surprised. People can go... Sometimes people accept it completely... Um, completely calmly and other times people get really really angry and the prime minister has to sort of mop that up. other times they they don't listen so they don't realize they've actually been fired that's that also happens <laughs> and i suppose it's a tricky th having had to do it once or twice before it is a tricky thing letting someone go have you ever had to do that david either let someone go or let go yourself no, and, and actually I realise that I am tempting fate at this moment. I mean, simply by being here having this discussion, which actually I myself suggested. I have <laughs> never been let go and I have never had to fire anybody. Um, I very early on in my experience of management realised I was the one of the worst managers in the world um, and that I shouldn't be doing that kind of job and got out of it as soon as I possibly could, partially because I just couldn't take the level of interest that people wanted you to take in other people's careers. Um, uh, I know it's selfish and so on, and writers often are a bit kind of, uh, a bit selfish like that. But what I was really struck by um, uh, in this one was the fact that Keir Starmer was shuffling people who no one else had ever heard of. Well, right? that, I, I mean, the British, public, the British <laughs> public has no idea who these people are. So the only thing that the British public, insofar as they're taking any notice of this at all now, know is that whatever it was that he was doing with these people they'd never heard of, it was not been a big success. That's all they know, uh, and so on. And they, they don't <laughs> care if Angela Rain is there instead of Lisa Nandy, because they don't know who they are, uh, and so on. And they won't know who they are until Labour gets into government, more or less, and then they will find out who they are, just as they found out who Pretty Patel was. Can you imagine people knowing who Pretty Patel was when, 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 for example, if the Tories were in opposition? They just wouldn't know, and so on. The other thing that I do remember, however, from the Blair uh, government was that people used to go in to see Tony Blair about whether or not they were being reshuffled, and they would come out with entirely the wrong impression about whether they had been or they hadn't been, because they always thought, that people always thought that Tony had more or less agreed with them with whatever it was that they, they'd said. And he admitted that although, he, you know, he could do all these other, all these other things, uh, he hated doing the business of reshuffling. And that's, at the end of it, uh, is often the problem which is that it's a really horrible thing to have to do to tell somebody that they've lost their job. 
for quite for quite a lot of them, that's the end of their big political careers, and this is what they've spent the last twenty twenty five years being. You know, this this greasy this this, this business <laughs> going up the greasy pole, bit by bit you slip back a bit, you get up, etc. But you know that if you do a big slide down, that's usually the end of it. Not always, but usually. And you're the person who has to tell them that their hopes have come to an end. I, I find that really tricky. And I suppose, actually, because during the Blair years, Danny, we, we used to get them sort of every 12 months we'd have a reshuffle, normally after a bad set of local elections before we then went on to win a, a general election. David Cameron sort of got out of that habit and left people yeah. well alone, partly because you end up with more unhappy people than, than happy people. Nobody knows well, who any of these people are. So, that, so the gain is quite limited. Um, and I'm not, sure, I'm not completely sure. In fact, there was a, there was, I think there was a quote in the Sunday Times of someone saying... Um, uh, I don't think the reason we lost Hartlepool was because Thangan Debonair was the Shadow Housing Secretary. And she's <laughs> not the Shadow Housing Secretary anymore. She's now the <laughs> Commons leader. And I'm not sure that that is why uh, Hartlepool went Tory. No, I mean, look, it, 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 the, the reason David didn't like to do it is because it undermines governing. You have to start again. Um, if you think about it, you know, you're starting again with someone who doesn't know very much about it. And occasionally... He did it because you do run out of road in departments sometimes when you've made a lot of changes, particularly in health education, where, which are quite controversial areas. You can run out of road. Um, you know, that did happen to Jeremy Hunt, actually, in the end. Um, and, um, and, and it's certainly happened to Michael Gove. You, you, so you have to do it. One of the reasons that you know that this is, it's hard to get this right is because Tony Blair found it so hard, and in other ways, politically, he was so capable. Um, you also know, because he didn't get it right quite often, that it doesn't matter in terms of, of the result, um, uh, in terms of election results, it doesn't change anything. So it's only worth doing if you think that the change is worthwhile. One of the things about it is that everyone goes crazy about the choreography, and I've never understood that. I don't, I don't, I think it can, you know, it can, people got very upset with Jeremy Corbyn because it took him a few hours to to change his shadow cabinet. And I never, I really didn't understand what the problem with that was. Um, there's a sort of expectation of, of, of slick um, management of the public relations aspect of the reshuffle, which is, which is, very high, but also a bit pointless. Why does it matter? Uh, what matters is what you emerge uh, with. Uh, in truth, I, don't, I think that uh, the, late, the Keir, Keir Starmer is a little bit stronger with having Rachel Reeves as his shadow chancellor rather than Annalise Dodds. It's not a revolution in, in, uh, in their prospects, uh, but it's a little bit stronger. So, um, But because of that expectation that he'd do it slickly and his failure to achieve that, and because he fell out with Angela Rayner in the process, I think he definitely weakened himself overall. I suppose that's the, yeah, the overall, but you're right. If, to the extent that anyone noticed this, it's probably the commentary that it didn't go uh, necessarily according to plan. Uh, let's speak to the other guy on this, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson under investigation uh, for who paid for his holiday to Mustique. And I think, David, you wanted to ask the question, why does well, everyone do... go to Mustique? Yeah, why, why Mustique? I mean, it always turns out that the person has been to Mustique. I think Princess <laughs> Margaret was always in Mustique. I mean, toe-sucking <laughs> seems to go on in Mustique. Every time, you know, it, it, if, if you're going to be caught at the house of some kind of dodgy billionaire, it always turns out to have been on Mustique. Danny, have you been to Mustique? <laughs> and if so, why? The, the and why do other people go there? The, the Mustique, Mystique. Um, well, so I have been to Mustique. Oh, Thank you for asking uh, the question. With Boris Johnson um, or, Prin I, I, or Princess I went Margaret? To, I, went to, I went to review it um, for the Times. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, we stayed there for a week. And uh, I 
the mystery as to why everyone goes there uh, is not a mystery to me any longer. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing place because um, it's sort of very calm and um, very beautiful. So I to- and uh, I totally understand. And and there are there's sort of no traffic. Everyone travels around in sort of golf carts. Uh, and obviously, as you would expect from an island full of extremely rich people, uh, it's kind of well appointed and uh, and rather laid back. It's 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 a it's a very beautiful uh, place, but. Um, the story itself, the, these these stories themselves, um, they do matter, you know, for for uh, for Boris Johnson. The the relationship with the standards uh, committee and the standards process is already difficult for him. And although they may not matter with the electorate, or at least it looks as though in the short term they haven't made that much impact. I don't think we should make the mistake of thinking they that that means they don't matter. First of all, there's they matter in themselves in an ethical sense, um, but they also matter politically because what happens in Westminster does have an impact on you know people's ability to to uh, to do their job at uh, high high levels in in Parliament. And it goes back to the I mean, we've talked about it before, Danny. That you know this stuff doesn't matter until it, it until it does matter. But I was struck yes. on a day, um, David, yesterday. There was a, a call that whoever stands in the next by-election for the Labour Party has to be working class uh, <laughs> to prove that the Labour Party's on the side of the working class while the other guy who's just won the by-election uh, is under investigation for his freebie holiday to Mustique, suggesting the public <laughs> perhaps don't mind all that much if, 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 the, if the Labour candidate is a whippet owner or not. Oh, OK, so the, the Tory candidate who won Hartlepool is a... Uh, is a fairly wealthy businesswoman, I gather, from outside Hartlepool. The guy who lost for Labour um, is a doctor in an NHS that we've been clapping for the best part of a year. So though he's not working class, he belongs to what you might call the hero classes. And it didn't help him at all, uh, apparently. Um, In fact, it simply reminded people that 11 years ago, the local hospital had been closed. And so therefore, you know, he he must have had something to do with it in uh, in some way. Um, I, I was just wondering, I mean, my, my, both my parents left school, my father at 14 and my mother at 16. Do I qualify? Do I qualify? I mean, I'm a Times <laughs> columnist now, of course, etc. But, but do, I, do I qualify? At what point did I cease to qualify? Was it when I got, went to Oxford, but they chucked me out after two terms, so maybe I didn't qualify for two terms, <laughs> but once I went to Manchester again, I did qualify. Um, uh, d- d- does your parent have to have had a manual occupation for you to qualify to be working? If so, is it both parents? And begin to get into the situation, you know, that the people were in, in Nazi Germany, which is not an exact parallel, I agree, where they begin to grade people according to the scale of their, you know, their Jewishness or their Aryanness or their working <laughs> classness or their middle classness. You know, you get to be working class of the third degree, which you have two grandparents working class. But somehow that's kind of made bad by two parents who were, I don't know, doctors or, or something else. Um, it's ludicrous and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It only matters to the Labour Party. And the fact that it matters to the Labour Party gives you one indication of why the Labour Party's got a problem. And I suppose the thing that really struck me, uh, Danny, is the only people who keep talking about how the Labour Party's lost touch with the working class is the Labour Party. You know, Angela Rayner had an article in The Guardian. You know, the Tory party don't go around it. The Tory party just go around mm. saying, do you want some stuff? And if you vote for us, we'll give you some stuff. And that seems <laughs> to be much more effective. But actually, the people who perpetuate the idea the Labour Party's lost touch with its base are the Labour Party. 
Absolutely. Look, I mean, one of the problems is that they, the Labour Party has uh, still persists in thinking that the only people who work are working people, right? You know, uh, and 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 um, and uh, that that is sounds as sort of uh, strangled as it is. Dave, David's quite right. I was just thinking of the fact that my my grandmother. Um, worked in a state collective farm uh weeding the crops but that didn't you know either make her an agriculturalist or a uh, or, or or a member of the working class she it's a sort of silly phrase and I, and people the, the truth is that class categories have changed quite a lot and people's identities have changed and their relationship of their identities to their politics has changed and so this is just misconceived it does matter who you select as a candidate i thought one of the most interesting things about hartlepool was that the conservative party managed to win by such a large margin with a with a with you know what in conventional terms wasn't an appropriate candidate against someone who looked like he was and that is very interesting um and it can matter who the candidate is in a by-election a lot, actually, um, and and whether they're local. But the idea, you know, but it's a sort of odd response to the Hartlepool results. I think that was the problem. Danny Finkelstein and David Wanovich there. You can read them both in the Times every week. Of course, just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what was in the Queen's speech? You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, sound the trumpets. So, Tom, what, 24 bills altogether? Um, Try and... Make some sense for us of, of the key, the ones that leap out to you. And is there a theme that the Prime Minister is trying to sort of sell to the country as we emerge from the pandemic? Yeah, I think there's, uh, there is an overarching theme. It's going to be interesting in Queen's Speech. Workmen like Queen's Speech. Uh, we, we, we said that with some idea what was in it. Of course, we've been holding on to a copy of the Queen's Speech since 9 o'clock this morning, which they're kind enough to give us journalists to plough through. So we can tell you a little bit more. There are basically five main themes, I think, across this map. 25 actual bills. One of them is a carryover bill, so 24 new ones. Quite a few other proposals, ideas, suggestions. No commitments to legislate for them yet, which might raise some eyebrows. We can get on to some more interesting ones in a bit. But those five main themes, levelling up and building back better, that's the government's main flagship uh, uh, purpose, if, if you like, of this whole parliament. It was when Boris Johnson was elected in 2019. He's now added on build back better from COVID in terms of in, improving the, the nation, repairing the damage, and Improving things, three bills really on that, the skills and post-16 education bill, that's that's the big reforms to adult skilling, skilling up, skills lifetime guarantee and some interesting new financing about uh, how adults can go and do that. That's a big deal. The planning bill, I think we have to call that a levelling up bill, that will be hugely controversial, already has been. Robert Jenrick's big plan to basically force councils to build more houses where the government would like, not necessarily where the councils would like and he's already had some fairly substantial skirmishes with backbenchers and then the health and, and care bill, which is all about increasing preventative treatment. I think the lessons learned by the NHS from 
from COVID. Uh, not in that as social care, but let's let's come on to that. Then there's Brexit subsidies and uh, the like, setting up free ports. The third theme is green. There's a big environment bill to enshrine in legislation all those new environmental targets, punishing new uh, carbon targets by you know 2035. No more gas borders for anybody by 2035. That's all going to get legislated for. Uh, then security, some really interesting security stuff actually to counter the espionage threats from China and Russia, both online and in person. Banning foreign spies who've got no good reason to be here. For example, uh, the counter-state threats bill and the telecommunications security bill, which is Huawei related to stop uh, the likes of the Chinese bugging us. And then the, the final theme, really interesting this one actually, and, and we'll get a lot more detail on this as, as the months go on. Four different bills to, to reform the constitution, to shake up the state a little bit. The one I think we knew about, uh, the dissolution calling of parliament bill, that scraps the fixed term parliament acts, gives the uh, Prime Minister the power back to call election where he wants, but also a judicial review bill, that suggests that the curbing of the power of judicial review, curbing the power of, of courts and, and um, uh, lawyers that the government is not particularly fond of. Uh, the higher, age, higher education brackets freedom of speech bill. Sounds pretty interesting. I think you can get an idea. That, well, that feels a bit culture war-y. That feels just freedom a of speech, just a little bit. It's got Gavin Williams' culture war um, on university campuses written all over it. And then the electoral integrity bill, which is all about voter ID. So... Five main themes. Not none, all of those things, although they're possibly a little bit niche and, like you said, constitutional, not without controversy. I mean, there's a lot of people very, already very cross about this idea of people having to show ID before they can vote and whether that mm. will d- discriminate against particular groups. Fixed-term Parliament Act, of course, was passed by the coalition so that that could last so far. But that was now 11 years ago that uh, that stayed there. Uh, we hope that it's not because Boris Johnson wants to call a general election this year. We, 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 we'll wait and see. Um, let's um, focus on the skills uh, plan, first of all. Uh, the government wants to transform the skills system for the so-called forgotten 50% of people who don't uh, go to university and get a degree. We can hear now from the Times education editor, uh, Nicola Walcott. This Queen's speech will drive home the message from the Lifetime Skills Guarantee announced by Boris Johnson back in September last year. This aims to transform the skills system so uh, everyone can gain the skills they need to progress in work at uh, any stage of their life, so not just restricting funding to young people. Now, the government also intends to allow access to the student loan funding system for adults who want to study at further education colleges at any stage in their life. But at the moment, only those taking degrees at registered providers qualify for funding. Now, the whole thing seems to tie in with the government's levelling up agenda and with Gavin Williamson's determination to focus on skills and those who don't go to university. As many listeners will remember, Tony Blair's government aimed to send 50% of young people into higher education, which has been achieved. But the mood music of this Queen's speech is very different. It's aimed at the so-called forgotten 50% who do not take degrees or equivalent. Further education is it's often known as the Cinderella part of the education system. It's been the worst funded for the past decade and often has complained of being neglected. But this seems to be part of a wider government aim to appeal to people who don't live near university cities to promise them the opportunity of decent local work and of education without the need for a brain drain to more affluent areas. Um, However, the Times revealed this week that some universities and businesses want the government to focus on freeing up apprenticeship funding. Ten vice chancellors wrote to Rishi Sunak and Gavin Williamson saying that billions of pounds of the apprenticeship levy, which is imposed on businesses with a wage bill of more than £3 million, is going to waste. 
And they said this is because the sort of courses on which the money can be spent is too inflexible, so isn't being spent. They want the freedom to set up more short courses and boot camps focusing on skills, which would surely tie in perfectly with the message from this Queen's speech. That was Nicola Walcock uh, sending us a note. Uh, she's a, the Times Education Editor on the uh, the levelling up uh, aim of uh, the uh, education skills uh, legislation announced by the Queen in the Queen's speech. Uh, one of the things that Tom uh, just touched on as well, has got a big thing as part of this levelling up agenda, is planning. Uh, the commitment to allow more people to buy their own homes. Uh, lots of research suggesting that in areas with high levels of home ownership, that's where the Tories are making breakthroughs against uh, the Labour Party and what's known as the Red Wall. Uh, the government uh, plan to modernise the planning system to build more homes. We can hear now from uh, Henry Zeffman, the Times Chief political correspondent, who can explain what that means and the political implications. Well, in the House of Lords, the Queen uh, has just in slightly weird regal language talked about how the government will bring forward laws to modernise the planning system so that more homes can be built. But as ever in a Queen's speech, that really underplays the significance of the planning bill that the government is going to introduce in this parliamentary session. It amounts to the biggest overhaul of the planning system for more than 70 years. Uh, It would radically scale back the opportunity for so-called nimbyism uh, to object uh, to new developments. So under the plans, as as we understand they currently are at the moment, uh, all of the country will be split up into zones. We think they're currently going to be called growth zones, and protection zones and in growth zones uh, a huge class of buildings including places like uh, homes schools hospitals will be able to be built without any planning approval whatsoever they can just go ahead uh, automatically now that's a really big change it's a really big transformation and there is a political imperative here for the conservative party uh, they are making strides into uh, new Uh, parts of the country, parts of the country which have been Labour for generations. We saw that last week in the Hartlepool by-election. And one thing which Conservative ministers are very aware of uh, is research which suggests that the places where they are doing best, the traditional Labour areas where they are doing best, are the areas where uh, home ownership is highest. And so as a result, they see a political impetus behind increasing rates of home ownership. And so this planning bill should be seen in that political context for the Conservative Party. This is not just about winning more of the former so-called Red Wall. It's about entrenching the gains the Conservatives have made there for another election, perhaps another generation. Henry Zeffin there, Times Chief Political Correspondent, uh, talking us through those uh, planning reforms, Tom. They, that seemed, planning and skills are two of the big sort of levelling up uh, bills in the, uh, in the Queen's speech. Quite a lot on security... Um, and the sort of it seems like there's a balance on the one hand there's sort of old Tory themes tough on crime tough on uh, terror uh, uh, there's um, uh, the campus um, freedom of speech and all that and then there's also the sort of the modern new Boris Johnson Tory Mm. party or going green um, leveling up uh, and so on Um, but what's missing what are the big things which which for you you were expecting or perhaps you might have thought might have been slightly more concrete 
Well, you would imagine when the government say we're going to do this, they go and do it. So there, there are some things that they clearly have said they were going to do that just aren't in this Queen's speech. And, and the, the, the language that the government uses in a Queen's speech is, is a big giveaway, to be honest about Unless they commit to introducing an actual bill, it almost only ain't going to happen. Lots of promises of legislation proposals, but unless there's a named bill, they're probably not going to do it. So on levelling up, it is actually quite a, worth pointing out that uh, there are some interesting things going on here, planning and, and skills. What isn't happening is a big levelling up uh, bill to dramatically uh, reshape the economy in these sort of places. We, there was talk, the Times had a very good story the other day, the Prime Minister uh, in, enshrining in law an ability to move jobs to where people are in places like Hartlepool or, or the North East or the North or wherever they might be not for them having to move shops. No, no bill to legislate on that. There is a, uh, there is a levelling up white paper coming, but there is clearly not enough thinking yet done to put in that. So that is missing. Three major things, though, not in it we're expecting. One, social care. There is no promise whatsoever to legislate on social care. There is a promise to bring proposals forward, which means we may come up with a plan at some stage, somehow, but remember, we're now some 18 months on, uh, almost two years on, actually, I beg your pardon, from the Prime Minister standing on the steps of Downing Street in July 2019 saying, I have a plan ready to go. And that is not here. In fact, we can remind ourselves of what the Prime Minister said right now. And so I am announcing now on the steps of Downing Street that we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all with a clear plan we have prepared to give every older person the dignity and security they deserve. A plan that we have prepared, although there's no sign of that uh, today. Uh, the Queen uh, saying just proposals on social care reform will be brought forward. So dis dis disappointingly vague. And in fact, uh, in a statement, the Prime Minister saying we will bring forward proposals to reform adult social care so that every person receives the dignity and security they deserve. Almost exactly what you said almost two years ago. Do you know what? It's pretty similar to what Tony Blair was saying almost 20 years ago as well. It's a gaping omission, and the significance of it not being in the, in the Queen's speech, a named bill not being in the Queen's speech, is it doesn't have to do it this year. So this could even kick into 2022 and even 2023, which is a, a substantial handbrake being whacked on this whole thing. And the significance, Matt, is this problem is only getting worse. It's not something that you can just mind. Uh, COVID has had a big effect on, on social care. It's made a lot more people in need of more care. We have an ageing population. Councils are screaming in despair because they don't think they have enough money anymore to deal with this growing problem. That was Tom Newton, our chief political commentator on Times Radio, talking us through what was in the Queen's speech. But let's focus now on something that wasn't the Queen saying that plans will be brought forward uh, on social care. But if that all felt a bit familiar, there's a reason for that. My ministers will work to improve social care and will bring forward proposals for consultation. In England, my government will secure the future of the National Health Service by implementing the National Health Service's own five-year plan, by increasing the health budget, integrating health care and social care, and ensuring the National Health Service works on a seven-day basis. A commission will be appointed to consider a sustainable long-term structure for the operation of social care. My government will introduce a bill to enable the wider provision of free personal care to those in highest care need. 
Yeah, so if all that sounded a bit familiar, that was the Queen uh, delivering the Queen's speech in 2017 and 2015 and 2010 and 2009, uh, repeatedly announcing that uh, something will be done about social care uh, without it ever coming to anything. So exactly where are we right now in terms of tackling this problem? Uh, let's hear now from uh, The Times' uh, uh, Whitehall editor, Chris Smythe. As the country emerges from the pandemic, NHS reform got top billing in the Queen's speech, with legislation due to be introduced within weeks. But despite another promise, there are still no concrete plans for social care. The Health and Care Bill promised today does two main things, one of which the government wants to talk about, and the other which it doesn't. Ministers present the bill as little more than a tidying-up exercise requested by NHS leaders themselves, which dismantled cumbersome competition rules imposed by the coalition government in 2012, and allow different parts of the health service to work together to plan care. So, instead of GPs acting as customers and buying services from competing hospitals on behalf of patients, the different bodies will work together to join up fragmented services. And the vaccination programme is explicitly presented as a model here. All parts of the health service working together to identify the most vulnerable and offering them help to prevent illness and stay well. If this vision is enthusiastically embraced by Simon Stevens, head of NHS England, the bill is also very clearly designed to clip the wings of whoever takes over when he stands down in the summer. Ministers are handing themselves greater power to overrule NHS England and intervene directly in decisions on local services that were taken away when the NHS was given operational independence a decade ago. Stevens has irked three successive Prime Ministers with his public lobbying for more money, exerting more power than most Cabinet Ministers, and Boris Johnson aims to create a system where the NHS Chief Executive gets on with implementing what the government tells them to do. One area where Stevens was vocal in his demands was for social care reform. And although Her Majesty said proposals would be brought forward, there was no detail almost two years after Johnson took office saying he had a plan to fix social care once and for all. Behind the scenes, the Prime Minister is looking closely at a cap on care costs, which would mean people no longer having to sell their homes to pay bills running into the hundreds of thousands of pounds. But the Treasury is alarmed about the cost and points out that improving the quality of care and giving it to the 1.5 million elderly people denied it by council cuts will double or triple the bill. So at some point this summer, Johnson will have to decide. Does he have the political will to demand the Treasury find the money and tell the voters that their taxes will rise to pay for it? That's Chris Smythe giving us the, uh, the Rundown Times uh, Whitehall editor. Well, let's get some more reaction to the, uh, the absence of anything concrete on social care now with Professor Martin Green, uh, Chief Executive of Care England. Good afternoon, Martin. Uh, good afternoon. On a scale of 1 to 10, how cross are you this lunchtime? I think I'm at about an 11. Uh, you know, you said in your report that we've been waiting for social care since 2015. Actually, we've been waiting for social care reform since Tony Blair uh, promised it in uh, 1998. And every government has made grandiose statements about what they intend to do, but they've never followed it through. And this was a moment when the Prime Minister could have done something very tangible. And like all his predecessors since Tony Blair, he's fudged the issue. And frankly, it's just not good enough. And what would this mean in practice? Because sometimes the word social care, it seems like an abstract thing. And uh, and if you're not directly affected by it, and you haven't been through the system. It, it just feels like something that's going on over there. And it gets talked all about politic by politicians who are happy for it to be seen as a sort of slightly dull thing. What does this mean in reality for people in the UK today in the coming months and years that this issue is not being tackled? 
Well, it will mean that some people don't get any services at all when they've had strokes or when they've had serious health conditions. And I think we should acknowledge the only reason people need social care is because of a health condition. But there is an arbitrary line being drawn for some people, and that says you have to pay for it. You will have some people who are facing poverty at the end of their life because they'll have had all their assets stripped away because they're having to pay huge social care bills. And what the government could have had an opportunity to do is to bring some balance and some fairness into the system and that's all we really want from them we want them to have a proper funding solution we want citizens to know what they're going to have to contribute we want people who have unfortunately uh, the, the problem of a stroke or uh, you know a, a long-term condition and need care we don't want them to be totally and utterly abjectly poor in their end of life because they've had to pay huge social care bills I wonder if you had contact with the government in the last few weeks and months, did you get a sense that they, you know, despite what Boris Johnson said almost two years ago, he had a plan prepared. Do they know what they'd like to do or are we still at the drawing board stage? No, I think government has got a plan and I don't know why they don't. Uh, put forward the plan you know they've told us they've got a plan for social care well let's get it out there let's get it discussed and when we have that plan and we can see what it is we'll then be in a much better position to know what it will cost there are certain issues as well that have got to be addressed so one of the big issues is the fantastic social care workforce which is not acknowledged as professional and is absolutely amazingly professional we need to get their wages and salaries onto a proper professional footing we need to get some really clear workforce strategies and I think it needs to be a 10-year plan exactly as the NHS has so there are some really underlying issues which could be dealt with by the whole of a reform package that would address the issues of funding but they would also address the issues of a long-term sustainable sector and also how we make sure that we have the right numbers and also the right quality of staff within that service. And how big a missed opportunity is this? It does feel like given what we've been through in the past 12 months given the extraordinary way that social care was was so badly hit by coronavirus and a sort of a, a national conversation about how we need to do better with the way we look after uh, our older people. Is this a big opportunity missed? Are we, if it's in the long grass now, it might it might never come out of it again. Well, it is a big opportunity missed. Um, you know, this could have been Boris Johnson's 1948 moment. He could have said, we have been through a trauma, we've been through a pandemic, we can see that social care is vitally important and is part of national infrastructure. And his legacy could have been that he solved that problem, which he promised to do when he arrived in Downing Street. And if he doesn't do that, he will go down, not as the Prime Minister who had the opportunity to solve a problem, he will go down in the long line of prime ministers who didn't do anything uh, so what what do you hope for now is it is it a bit of arm twisting or something in whitehall you might be able to persuade the government to do something well, the Queen's speech did give a commitment that they would bring forward some proposals. So let's see what those proposals are. Let's see them sooner rather than later. Let's work on them together because there are so many people who are providing care, who are delivering care. There are people who are, who are service users and their families who have views on this. Let's get those views together. But what we don't need is another commission and we don't need another navel-gazing exercise. What we need is just hear the voices of people involved and a government that sets out its proposals, brings its legislation to Parliament and delivers a solution that we have been asking for since 1998. 
just funny, that just means more tax, doesn't it? It means making the case for putting up tax to pay to look after our older people. Not necessarily. The bottom line is every government has to make decisions about where they put the money that's available. And so it might mean about rescheduling money from other areas. So it doesn't necessarily mean more tax. But if it does mean more tax, the government need to be open about that. And they need to have the conversation with the public about why they're going to ask them for more tax and what the benefits to the public is of doing that as opposed to something else. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 